Welcome to News Talking. This is D.G. Martin, and my favorite guest is here with us today, Jody Magnus. And Jody is, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to try to list, but you're a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And you're in the religion department, but you teach all different kinds of things. Right. That's right. I'm in religious studies, and um, my appointment is in early Judaism, but I am an archaeologist, so I also do some archaeology. Well, you're famous for lots of reasons, um, including your archaeology, and that's what we want to talk about today because you and a group of uh, students from Chapel Hill and other people who are your friends and supporters have been involved in a t- is it a ten or eleven year eleven year it's uh, eleven what, seasons we, eleven yeah. se- eleven seasons yeah. of uh, work at a little place in Galilee I guess yeah. in the Holy Land uh, where there is a puzzling building in a little town called Hukok right and you spent the better part of the last. 10 or 11 years of your life working on that. Even longer, actually, because we started digging in 2011, but we had two years during COVID when we couldn't dig. So, yeah, that's right. So over over time, (laughs) 11, 12, 13 years. Well, uh, tell us, and you've uh, been nice enough to share that with us along the way on Who's Talking, and I'm grateful for that. Now, we're not through, I guess, but we're through with the digging. Is that right? That's right. Yes. So we just completed our last season. I should say I completed my last season of digging at the site this this summer. Um, actually, what is it? We're now in August. So it was last month. And uh, I mean, there's plenty more that could be dug there. There's a huge it's a huge site. There's uh, lots of other remains that well, could be excavated. You, why, why aren't you going to do that? Right. So as I like to explain, the goal of archaeology is not excavation, it's publication. So if you think of archaeology as a scientific experiment, um, what we've done is we've conducted the experiment. And now we need to publish the results. And so over the course of 11 seasons of excavation, we've accumulated a huge amount of material, um, data. Uh, our finds are stored in two shipping containers in Jerusalem. I'm the proud owner of two shipping containers. And all of that material, pottery, animal bones, uh, pieces of gla- ancient glass, so on, all of that needs to be studied and and published um, in an So ex- how do you uh, – there, there's a little bone that you've got. And <laughs> yeah. how do you – has it got a little tag on it that said this was found yeah. on such and such yeah. a day yes. at approximately this uh, location? Yeah. And yes, things are stored according to their context. So everything we dig up, we record the context. So <clears throat> exactly where it came from, when it was found, and so on. So that when we publish, we have all of that data included because unlike – the exact sciences where the goal is to replicate the experiment. In archaeology, you can't replicate the experiment because once you've excavated that material out of the ground, you've destroyed the context. It's no more. And therefore, it is uh, very important in archaeology to record everything that we do as fully as possible and then publish it afterwards so that ideally somebody who comes along and reads the final excavation report Will be to will be able to reconstruct exactly where everything was found, in sort of a virtual way, because the context is no longer there. Was dug out. It's not you can't see it in three D anymore, but you can read about it. In 3D. Exactly, and now of course with the aid of computers and and technology, it's becoming easier to 
to do those sorts of reconstructions. But really, that's what archaeology has always been about, is virtually reconstructing uh, remains that no longer exist. Well, how will that uh, publication of your work, how will that, what, how are some ways that that will be useful or of interest to other scholars or to ordinary people? Yeah, sure. Well, most, to be, to be, uh, to be clear, most ordinary people will not pick up and read a scientific <laughs> excavation report. And even a lot of archaeologists don't read excavation reports because they're pretty technical and dry. It's not like usually a narrative unless you read the introduction well, or the conclusion. Well, let me just argue with you a little bit. But if, if say, Al would be interested in a coin if you found yeah, it. Yeah, sure. And no, so and, if your yeah, report says right. this coin, here, here's what we've done to identify it and here's where we found it and here are Absolutely. some of the things that were nearby. Yes. That might be yes. useful to me, even though you never even thought of That's some right. Of no, absolutely. And, and that's the goal, right? To make all of that information accessible to everyone. Um, but even most archaeologists won't pick up and read a scientific excavation report from beginning to end. Usually they'll do exactly the sort of thing that you're describing, which is they might be interested in the pottery uh, or specific types of pottery, or they might have an interest in coins, or they might have an interest in the remains of a specific period, but not the other periods that we dug up at the site. For example, we have at our in our site uh, Roman remains, we have late Roman remains, we have medieval remains, we have modern remains. Not everybody's going to be interested in all of that, so people will be able to get the information that they need. Well, now, ideally, why are there why are there so many different kinds of remains? I mean, it, it's one site. It's uh, one site. Yes, and, but. It was a rural site, so basically a, a village throughout time. But there is a small freshwater spring at the base of the site that attracted settlement because in the Middle East, you know, there's not a lot of sources of water. And uh, even in areas that are relatively fertile, um, you only have rain falling for maybe less than half of the year. And so you have long, dry spells. Um, I was actually listening to the news this week, and they mentioned about that tropical storm hitting Southern California and that L.A. never gets rain usually in the summer and so it's like that also in the Middle East. So having a perennial freshwater spring will attract per permanent settlement, and that's the case at Hukok. Um, back up for just a second and uh, talk to me about things that you found that you just didn't expect. What did, and what did you learn that you didn't expect to learn? Well, that's a great question. We always learn things that we didn't expect in archaeology because no matter what you hope to find, you don't know what you're going to find. So everything is is a surprise. Well, you found some mosaics, <laughs> yes. and that's become the headline. Yes, that's let's right. Skip, uh, let's we'll skip the mosaics, skip, right. What, what are some other um, things that that you're going to remember? Is this? I'm so glad we found this, and I'm—, I'm and, right. That, that's right. one of my achievements, my right. lifetime achievements. Well, aside from the, the obvious, the, the late Roman synagogue with the mosaics, which you just mentioned, um, I think the most surprising big thing is the reconstruction and expansion of the late Roman synagogue about a millennium after it was originally reconstructed. So in the early 14th century, that is the late Middle Ages, uh, the synagogue building, which had been lying in ruins and abandoned for centuries— was rebuilt, expanded, so it was rebuilt on a larger scale, apparently for use again as a synagogue. And this is the first synagogue of this period that's ever been discovered in an archaeological excavation in Israel. So it's no less important than the original synagogue. Well, if this is true, it's hard for me to believe this because this, the, uh, that region was in 
under the charge of uh, Muslim yes. rulers, and yes. they were not encouraging people mm-hmm. to build. Yes, s- and that's synagogue. that's right. And so at this point, the country is under the rule of the Mamluks um, in Egypt. Uh, and indeed, there were bans on the construction of new synagogues. Now, that's not to say that they were universally enforced, but there were, in fact. And we propose that one of the uh, ways that our, you know, what happens with our synagogue is that the bans um, allowed for the reconstruction of an already existing synagogue. So we think that our synagogue building, even though it was in ruins, the memory that it was a synagogue was still preserved. People still knew it was a synagogue, identified it as a synagogue, and this allowed them to circumvent the ban on the construction of a new synagogue building. All right. Those people who've been with us and followed your career and your findings in at Hukok mainly focused on this uh, fifth century? Yeah, or uh, late, that's right. Late fourth, early fifth century. So yeah. around the year 400 A.D. That, mm-hmm. And we found a lot of things, including the mosaics, which we'll talk about later, but very important. But uh, what I've had a hard time with is if they built the synagogue, how did how did they build? The, I mean, the new synagogue. I'll call the, it the later, the, the yeah, later, uh-huh. the later synagogue. How did they do that without tearing up all of the things that you wanted to find out as you explored archaeology? Uh, yeah, as the uh, fifth century right synagogue. Right, it's really interesting, actually. Um, uh, they did. They did tear up some things. In other words, there is some. There are some places where the earlier remains were damaged or cut through by the later building, but it's very clear that they could see the synagogue, the earlier synagogue. They could see the walls, what was left of the walls. They could see the mosaic floors, what was left of the mosaics, and they were very careful to try and preserve everything that they could of the later build of the earlier building. Um, without destroying it. So there were cases where they had to like cut through the mosaics or, you know, damage or, or destroy early remains for the new building. But it's very clear that wherever they could, they tried to preserve the early remains. And it's it's thanks to the later building, in fact, that the mosaics are preserved so well. Wow. So you're uh, not angry with them for messing it up? You're grateful no, to them? No, to the contrary. Yeah. Well, if you joined us late, I'm visiting with uh, Jody Magnus, and we're talking about her work uh, at a little village in Galilee called Hukok, and she's become a famous person all across the world for these, uh, this work. She's sharing it with us now, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. I'm visiting with Jody Magnus, Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and famous throughout the world yeah. for her work as an archaeologist uh, in oh, in um, in the near Middle East. <laughs> okay, it's uh, in in uh, lots of places: uh, Greece, uh, Masada, <laughs> and um, more recently, and an intense work at a little village called Hukok, and she's telling us about some of the things that she found there. We didn't talk about the mosaics, but I, I, I want you to talk about the mosaics, which have gotten a lot of attention, and they are frankly just very beautiful. And your husband is a great photographer of them. <laughs> That's right. Um, did, the, did, did the finding of, the, was the finding of the mosaics, which are extraordinary, and which draw attention 
for, to people like me who don't know very much about other archaeology, is that a uh, has that been a plus or a minus as far <laughs> as your work? That's a yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, so so it's been both really, and and um, obviously the mosaics are just as tell you say. About, there's tell no, us no, there's so so it turns out that our that our late Roman synagogue again around the year 400 A.D was paved entirely with mosaics that are divided into panels that depict, for the most part, biblical stories. So we have the parting of the Red Sea, we have Noah's Ark, we have the building of the Tower of Babel, we have the biblical hero Samson, we have, so a whole array of, of biblical stories. Um, and really unparalleled. I mean, for pretty much for the most part, we don't have other uh, synagogues decorated with these scenes, these biblical scenes. Um, and certainly not the richness, the diversity of the biblical stories that we have. And so in terms of— So this has of, gotten worldwide attention. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That. And That's it's right. something—they're uh, beautiful. Other mosaics are beautiful. It, these these are special. Why? Well, they're, it's not just that they're beautiful, which they are, um, in terms of the artistic quality or just, you know, enjoying to look at them, but also the information that they provide about Jews in this period, right? What 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 were Jews? What are, what are the what, Bible stories that they told? Exactly. What were the Bible stories they told? What which Bible stories were important to them? Why were they important? Are there differences between the way that they show a biblical story and what we know of that biblical story, or how it's you know how it's described in in the Bible? So there's and there's many other things as well. So so. It's, it's a very rich source of information and new information about Judaism in late antiquity. Um, so really, the, the importance of this discovery can't be, can't be um, overstated. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I have the enormous privilege of having been able to discover this, and, and really, it's, it's overwhelming. Um, but it also was a little bit of a curse. And here I don't want to—I I, want to qualify and say I don't want to sound whiny and I don't want to sound like I'm no, complaining. No, I'm more interested. But, I mean, but yeah. with, every, <laughs> with every surprising success, there is a little bit yeah. of a downside. So well, it, uh, yeah, I mean, I had—I re- eventually— Let reckon- me just say, that, you know, the— to, from our standpoint, oh, she found all right. these yeah, messages. Lucky her. She's, she's right. set for life and <laughs> she's going to be happy. And that's right in a way. Yeah. But but there are also things that, that the finding of— what you didn't expect to find, it gets in the way of your finding what you were looking for right. originally. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, so um, it certainly has distracted a bit from what my what my goals were for the site, which have not changed. Um, and I here I want to go back to archaeology as a science, because a lot of people think of archaeologists as treasure hunters. Um, we're out to like find good stuff from the past. That's not what archaeology is. Archaeologists seek to understand the past, specifically the human past, by digging up human material culture, meaning anything that humans manufactured and left behind, we dig it up and we hope that that will shed light, help us better understand the human past. And well, I mean, yes, I mean, historians here, it depends on how you define archaeology and history, (laughs) but but in this sense, historians would be people who study the past based on um, literary sources, written sources. I mean, let me guide you. Yeah, if I can. Yeah, <laughs> but um, we we now have these mosaics that are hundreds of years after Jesus lived in Galilee, mm-hmm. and so we now have a for the first time we have a depiction of what the people four hundred years later after Jesus were 
we're saying about the Bible, and it informs the way we tell the story of of anything that happened in that area. Yeah, let me. Okay, so let me clarify. We do have other ancient synagogues, including in Galilee, that have biblical stories depicted in them from this period. So in that sense, this is not something that, but we do not have other synagogues with the range of stories that we have depicted mm. in our synagogue. So it, in that sense, it's a much richer repertoire, right? But it's not the first time. Um, but, but just to go back a, a minute, so, you know, so as a science, as scientists, we as archaeologists, again, seek to understand the human past, but we don't just randomly go and start digging well, you know you're going to find stuff when you dig. That's that's not the that's not the problem. But ideally, as an archaeologist, you you dig, you excavate, you conduct excavations in order, hopefully, to dig up remains that will help answer your specific research questions. So I didn't just start the excavation at Hukoke to find something, and I certainly wasn't yeah, looking for mosaics. Yeah, tell us what your research question was. Right. My so my big research question was to understand the fate of Jewish villages like Hukoke, which was a Jewish village in the Roman and Byzantine periods, to understand what was the fate of Jewish villages like this after they came under Christian rule, that is, after the Roman Empire became a Christian empire in the 4th century. Did they suffer and decline, as many of my Israeli colleagues think, under Christian rule? Was Christian rule oppressive to the Jews? Or my impression from the archaeology was always the opposite, that these Jewish settlements continued to flourish and prosper in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. That was the big research question that I was hoping to answer. And the remains at Hukok actually support my view. It doesn't mean it's true of every Jewish settlement in Galilee, but at least at Hukok, we do have evidence of a Jewish settlement that continued to flourish and when prosper. When did you feel like you had proved your point? Well, once we were able, well, actually, probably from about the second season on, when we were able to dig, when we found mosaics, when when we were able to date the synagogue through the archaeological finds, meaning the pottery and coins associated with its construction. Um, later, we got also radio, radiocarbon dates. Um, and we also have some remains of the ancient village that we dug up contemporary with the synagogue, um, which, again, reinforced this picture of a village that that prospered during this period. But but I want to go back to your to your question about the diversion. So so the mosaics again they've been kind of a blessing and a curse. So the blessing is obvious. The curse part was raising money to fund the excavation because once we found the mosaics, my my dig budget just exploded because the mosaics require a special degree of conservation and care. And as the excavating archaeologist, I am required as part of my excavation license, my dig permit, to provide that. So, so you had to go raise the funds. Exactly. To, uh, I have to raise all of the money. Um, this past season, in fact, uh, my, my dig budget for one season of excavation was approximately half a million dollars. And I have to raise all of that money myself. So so one of the problems that I had, and this continued through the years, was raising the funds necessary for the cost of conservation and all of the other work needed um, for the excavation. So literally finding the mosaics kind of blew my budget out of the water. But, that but, was, but, but, but the attention that you got 
It did not. It, it you, did. It sure somewhat, would open it, the door. You to, would you would think, and maybe it's just that I'm not such a great fundraiser, which I'm probably not. Yeah, I, I, I do. Fun. I have to say I did benefit from getting um, funding from sources that would not have provided funding and sub- some, sometimes very substantial from sources that otherwise would not have provided funding. So I, I do have to say that. But it wasn't like, oh, yeah, just the, the floodgates open yeah. and people were like opening their, their wallets or, you know, writing checks and and. It was not. It was not like that. I wish it had been, but it was not. And um, and in fact, um, I I might have wanted to have continued to excavate for one more season beyond this past one, even though we did finish the synagogue this season. But frankly, the fundraising part of it got so difficult um, and so challenging. And there's all sorts of other logistical aspects. In fact, what happened is our cost basically doubled after COVID. Um, that was another thing that happened when when COVID hit. You know, a lot of of costs of things went up after COVID, and that is certainly true in Israel. And um, especially the cost of room and board where we stay, everything just skyrocketed, and um, the the fundraising part became very hard. And so that was one of the you know one of the difficulties. And then, you know, at at first when the mosaic started to attract all the attention, I was a little bit resentful because it's like, well, I didn't, I I don't want to be. I didn't do this for fight to find mosaics. I want mosaics. to tell you about my. Th- yeah, no, no, exactly. I mean, it's not. This isn't actually about the mosaics. I mean, the mosaics are great, but they're kind of a side product of you know uh, of the excavation for me. And so I, I was kind of like, oh, okay, I'm going to be forever associated with these mosaics, which on the one hand is great, but on the other hand, you know, I've spent a lifetime, a career working in all sorts of other topics that are completely unrelated to the mosaics, but it's the mosaics that you know, that are drawing all the attention. So it took me a little while to kind of reconcile with oh, that. It's man. fine, but, you know. Well, I want to, let's, let's <laughs> you know, again, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about it, but it did, you don't, it did take me a while to, you, to become used you know, to it. I mean, yeah. I think it's important to understand that in terms of what we learn from your experiences. But we got to take a break. Okay. And so we'll uh, take a break and come back. And those of you who joined us late, we're going to continue the discussion with Jody Bangness about her archaeological work in the, in the Near East, at particularly at Hokuk, Hukuk, uh, and we're not going to celebrate all together the mosaics, <laughs> but we're going to talk a little bit about them. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. My guest is Jody Magnus. Uh, Jody Magnus is a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, active in the religious studies effort there, and um, also a world-famous archaeologist. And one of the reasons she's so famous is because she dug up a bunch of mosaics. (laughs) But that's not why she wants to be famous. (laughs) She wants to be famous for showing that um, that during the times that the Romans ruled the Holy Land— Jews were able to build uh, synagogues, and you've you, you've pretty much shown that, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, and and to to be clear, we we actually did know that that Jews built synagogues during this period, but 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 there is uh, a a very widespread view among many of my Israeli colleagues that Jewish settlement declined in Galilee in this period, and that was one of the reasons I I uh, conducted the excavations at Hukok. I actually had a second research question, and I don't want to go into the nitty-gritty. No, but, well, just tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, it concerns the dating 
of a particular kind of synagogue building, the kind of synagogue that uh. we have at Hukok, which is very similar, for example, to the synagogue at Capernaum, only a couple of miles away, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. And That's so, a, a regular stop on – well, uh, oftentimes stop on That's right. Uh, yeah, too. absolutely. And so – um, Here, let me get off topic yeah. for just a, So, I mean, what happens is uh, those of us who are – uh, Christians, yeah. particularly if we're interested yeah. in Jesus and all that, he went. He spent some time there, so we want to go to Capernaum. Yeah. Then we get there, and the synagogue is not the one where he visited. That's uh, right. It, there, it's this beautiful. That's right. Yes, you're absolutely right. So, in fact, that synagogue that you see there, which is a huge synagogue, and by the way, is very similar to our synagogue yeah. at Hukok, except it doesn't have mosaics. It has a flagstone floor. Um, it's also a preserved bit. It's. Well, it's yeah, it's preserved somewhat better. Right. It's it's partially reconstructed, uh-huh. but anyway, um, uh, but but that synagogue um, uh, is has been dated traditionally by by scholars, by archaeologists, to the second and third centuries A.D. And I think that it dates much later. Oh. And I think that it and and synagogues of that style date much later. And so this was the second reason I was hoping to excavate a synagogue like that, which we fortunately did find, uh, albeit with the mosaics. And um, and our synagogue, in fact, does date to around the year 400, so significantly later than the synagogue, uh, than what is thought to be the date of the synagogue at Capernaum. Well, is there is there argument about the... There is a big argument. It's a huge argument. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it is. Well, I, but I, I, I mean, yeah, it's like one of these things where, but, but so, you know, the argument itself, you know, the dating of a specific kind of building, that's not something most people are going to be really interested in. But the implication, again, is, is the context, which is if these buildings, if these sorts of buildings date to the second to third centuries, it means they were built by Jews when they were living in a Roman environment, a Roman context or world. If they're built in the 4th, 5th, or 6th centuries, as I think, they're built in an overwhelmingly Christian context. And that means that has, of course, ramifications, meaning that Jews then would be building these enormous synagogue buildings in a Christian context rather than in a pagan Roman context. So that's kind of the ramification of the sort of what seems to be a nitty-gritty chronological debate. Well, well, well— um is is there something that you had hoped to find or some chain of things that you were thinking might show up in Hugh Coke and that you're disappointed that you didn't find? I mean, anything that you would have loved to have found? Um, no, I, I can't. I can't. Well, not in the big picture. So big picture, we, we were able to excavate part of the ancient village. We were ex- able to excavate. We found the synagogue. That was something that was not obvious when we started, that there was, in fact, a synagogue there and that we would find it. And we found it already in the first season. So that was very fortunate. Um, there are specific things that I wish we could have done or I wish I could have, in, if I had continued, uh, ex- excavating more of the ancient village, for example. So we conducted excavations in part of the ancient village houses contemporary with the synagogue um, from 2011 to 2014, but after that, we had to focus entirely on the synagogue for budgetary reasons. It was the synagogue was just sucking up all of my resources, and I had to devote all everyone to the to excavating the synagogue. From that point, I would have liked to have excavated more of the ancient village, the houses in the ancient village. Um, we have, and this is why I say I would have liked to maybe have continued one more season if if funding and other things weren't such an issue. 
but uh, we it turns out that there's an enormous, I mean, enormous paved courtyard to the east of the synagogue. Uh, and we we didn't excavate the whole thing. We got a we got a big chunk of it. We didn't excavate the whole thing. It would have been nice to have to have been able to but finish that. It, so you're you're wavering. If I called and said I've got a guy who's got an extra half million dollars or two million dollars. Uh, uh, yeah, no, actually, no, not, not wavering that much. <laughs> um, no, no, and 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 frankly, now now there's a whole nother. <laughs> Uh, there now, there's a whole other complication involved. So, um, and it's not just the fundraising, which is part of it, but there's also, a, you know, a lot of logistics. I do take students, as you mentioned, which is is wonderful, but it, it's also a huge amount of logistics and, and preparation and work to do that. Um, I haven't because I wasn't planning to dig next summer. I haven't reserved rooms where we would need to stay, which would be a mm. I mean, there's all sorts of logistical things that would make it difficult. I would have to now start thinking about applying to renew my excavation permit. Um, and the Israel Antiquities Authority, which is the government body that oversees archaeology in Israel, are just chomping at the bit for my current permit to expire, which it does on December 31st, so they can move in and start working on developing the site for tourism. So there's a whole so a whole a- series of things. Had I been planning you know, before this to already to continue for one more season, I would have built in all of that stuff. And, and, but now at this point, it it would be, it would be hard. And, and at this point, really, I, I mean, we, we have to turn to publication. I mean, well, you're going to do, well, this is a plus and a minus because you're going to be able to enjoy and send people like me to a place that has been designed for tourists Hopefully. rather than for fellow archaeologists. No, that's exactly right. That's the hope. That, again, that's not up to me, by the way. The development of the site for tourism is up to the Israeli authorities. Well, they're going to talk to you about it. Oh, of course they are. Yeah, absolutely. And they do talk to me about it. But the but the planning and the money and all of that, that's their thing. And um, I'm hoping that it will happen sooner rather than later. But it will be a huge project to develop the site. Um, let's take a break. Yep. I'm visiting with Jody Magnus. We're talking about her excavation at Hukok. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is DG Martin, and my guest is Jody Magnus. Jody, I'm sorry to have interrupted you when you were talking about the uh, pain and agony and the joy of closing down a project that, yeah. that is just totally woven into your. So we're sort of ripping the Band-Aid off, yeah. and, it's, and, it, and it hurts. Let, let, let's talk about some other things. Mm-hmm. You spent um, several seasons on this archaeological dig, but also before that in Israel. And we're watching Israel now with some concern about its future. Are you, and you can't talk about some things, I guess, but what, how do you feel about that and what's going to happen? <laughs> well— I'm going to dodge that one very easily by saying that as an archaeologist, we study the past, but do not predict <laughs> the future. <laughs> so I have no idea what will happen. But I, I will say that I am obviously very concerned and distressed about what's going on. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think that um, that what we see now is an expression of, of things that have been developing for years. And I think it was probably inevitable that these kinds of uh, fractures within Israeli society would would emerge uh, very visibly at some point. But, you know, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm concerned and 
yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, I do try to dodge the the political yeah, well, we won't questions that, as an archaeologist. But, but, yeah. But what um, what would you tell some of us who've maybe not been in Israel a lot? If we go back, are there things we should watch out for, or is it just the same as it was? Just a little bit of uh, controversy at the top. You mean in terms of your personal safety? safety yeah, oh. personal safety and also uh, in terms of what we can talk about and what we can't talk about. What's – is there – what's – Well, Israel is still a democracy and you can pretty much talk about anything you want and people do. Um, uh, as far as personal safety goes, I, I mean so far and, and thankfully the, the protests have been – the demonstrations have been peaceful, uh, overwhelmingly peaceful. And I mean – I think that's really pretty amazing when you think about it because, uh, I don't know, I think that if you had comparable demonstrations of that size or at least proportionately of that size going on in the U.S. every week, um, there probably would have been more violence at this point. But but that has not been the case in Israel. They've been overwhelmingly peaceful demonstrations, and that, that is uh, a great credit to the people of Israel. Um, but uh, – as far as personal safety goes, so far, I'd say it's the same as always. In other words, there's always security concerns in Israel to some degree. Uh, what I always tell people is um, don't wait until peace goes out, peace breaks out to go because you'll never get there. Um, but uh, I don't think the in, mm. in that regard, the situation is significantly uh, riskier now than it was, you know, at any time in the past. Well, let me jump back to what we were talking about, about the mosaics and as you say, you're going to give up your control of that site mm -hmm. uh, in the next month or two. Uh, December 31st. And so, but um, when can, when do you think, just, will it be 10 years before we can go? Where are the mosaics now? <laughs> where, where are they keeping the mosaics? Right. Uh, well, the mosaics are there. They're, 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 they're backfilled, so they're buried, right? And at some point, um, in, as part of the development, the working on the development of the site, they will need to re-expose them, obviously, and do more conservation on them. Uh, that doesn't mean necessarily they'll be open to the public, but at some point they will be re-exposed. When the site will actually be developed and open to the public, I can't tell you. Well, I, what I just else don't is know. there to see at Hukok other than the mosaics? Yeah, well, that's what that's actually me there? right. That's a big part of the you know that's a big part of the development question, right? So, so that it's the Israel Antiquities Authority together with the Jewish National Fund, the Karen Kayemet. The Karen Kayemet or Jewish National Fund owns the land. And the Israel Antiquities Authority is responsible for the archaeology. So they're the ones planning to develop the site for tourism. So that's actually – that's that's one of the big questions, right? I mean you want to have more than just the synagogue, right? So people when they come. So, so that's one of the things that they're discussing. What else do we do as part of the development of the site so when people come here – so for example, they're going to I think probably develop the area around the spring, which is a little natural kind of nature reserve – um, they're going to need to, I think, re-expose and maybe excavate more of the houses in the ancient village that are contemporary with the synagogue so people can see what did what were people living like when they built the synagogue. Um, so anyway, there's it, they, they may want to have a little museum-type structure there. I don't know. They're, they're going to need to think about what they want to have there so that when people come, it's not just the mosaics, even though obviously – it's the mosaics that will be attracting most people. But they're going to want to have, you know, some sort of a complex that, that kind of works together and situates Hukok in the air, in that sort of region. So, so those are the development plans. 
they do consult with me um, sort of on and off, but but those decisions are are up to them, right? That 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 vision, that planning vision is is what they're working on. So what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Well, first of all, we're going to work on excava- on, on on publishing the excavated material but from Hukok. Why is that so hard? You kept notes along the way, and oh, we them. have we have reams and reams of notes. Of course, everything's digitized. Who are your partners in this effort? Well, I have a, an assistant director, um, uh, Dr. Dennis Mitzi, at the University of Malta. Um, so he would be my primary partner. But I also have a very large staff of specialists who work on different categories and materials. Well, how are you going to pay for that? Uh yeah. So, right. So so. Um, Except for the person doing our animal bones, all of my staff are who are working on publication are from the U.S. Uh, or Canada, or basically I think from the U.S. And then Dennis from Malta. So they're they're like they're pretty much they're academics, they're specialists in their fields. They'll be working on the publication of this without a salary, but some of them will need to have their way paid to Israel in let's say the summer if they need to go look at material, um, and ultimately I will need to. Uh, find money to pay for the publication because the the publication itself, right? There's a publication process, editing, the illustrations, everything. You know, that all will need to be paid for. So I do have some money available, but I will certainly be applying for more sources of funding to help cover the publication process. Well, well, um, what? How am I going to ask this question? Um, yeah. What, well, so what do you do with the rest of your life other than this report? <laughs> well, you know, um, what do I do? You know, Hukok has been an important part of my life for the last, whatever, 13 years. But it hasn't been the only thing that I've done in my career. So I have plenty of other projects that I've worked on throughout my career um, and projects that I want to work on moving forward. So I just finished – well, not just, but I finished recently a – a massive book on ancient Jerusalem, on Jerusalem until the Crusade, until the uh, Crusades, um, and this which is, uh, published by Oxford University, Oxford Press, University Press. That's right, and it's now in production. In fact, I just so yesterday it's for all the readers and everybody who have to check your work. Yeah, it's all done. Like... It's in production. I just got the 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 first proofs of of um, one of the chapters, um, and so uh, give us a preview of what this is going to teach us about Jerusalem that we might not have known before. Well, it's. I got a huge amount of information, and I think that pretty much everybody, except maybe the biggest specialists on Jerusalem, will learn something new from it because it's 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 big and it's got a lot of information in it, and hopefully it's presented in a way that will be interesting and understandable. Well, for instance, also to people who are not specialists. For instance, well, I I think I mean I I don't I, wow I don't even know how to give a for instance, but okay, but, but 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 um. But what I do think, what I do think people will, what I hope people will understand who read this book, whether they're specialists or not, but especially non-specialists, is how complex the story of Jerusalem is. Mm. Right? What is the complexity? Why is it such a sacred and contested city? What does that go back to? Right? And so, so I think that will come across in the various chapters of the book. Well, that's great. So you think that's going to be fun? Yeah, and that will, that's book. supposed to come out in the spring. And I'm just now about to send off a manuscript um, on ancient synagogues, actually. Uh, last um, last December, 
I was invited to give a, a very prestigious series of lectures in London at the British Academy called the Schweich Lectures in Biblical Archaeology. So there's a series of three lectures. You go, you give the lectures in person, and then you write them up, and they're published in, as a book. So I've the I've the book is finished. What what I'm waiting uh, on now is my husband's just finishing up the illustrations. I'm so fortunate to have him uh, help me with that. And once he's done with the illustrations, which hopefully will be in the next couple of days, I'll be able to send that off to the British Academy. Um, and so that that is the next thing. And then, you know, moving forward, aside from Hukok, I have a couple of, of commitments that I need to of, of articles that I need to write on, you know, various topics, conference papers, things like that. And um, ultimately, when I clear the decks of, you know, all of this other stuff, I'm kind of hoping to get back to the subject of Herod, Herod the Great. Because in 2019, I published an article, a journal article about Herod's tomb at Herodium. Well, just and, uh, just excuse me for interrupting. Yeah. I'm really excited about this, and I'm an ordinary person, but us ordinary people, we really get interested in Herod. I know. The, Herod, yes. as uh, yeah. any listeners know, he got uh, he, he was a very important uh, figure in the New Testament. Yes. For, and right. so he, he's a favorite of yours, too. Yeah, you he's like a, him, right? kind of, I don't know if favorite is the right word, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe a favorite subject of study is if his yeah. favorite person. Yeah, but, I mean, he's, uh, an, yeah. he's an he's, interesting. Yeah, he's very he's, interesting. He's Trumpian in his, very, uh, you know, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's Larger just, than life. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. So in in um two, in 2007, his, his tomb was discovered at the site where he was buried, to Herodium. And uh, I wrote an article, I published an article about it in 2019, and I suggest that um, his tomb, the, the, the way that his tomb was built, supports a suggestion that was made a number of years ago by, uh, by a scholar named Avraham Shalit, which is that Herod um, presented himself as the fulfillment of the Davidic Messiah, that he, he had fulfilled the expectations associated with a Davidic Messiah. And um, it's a very complex article. We, we don't have time to go into it, I'm sure, right now. But it but it's something that I, I published as an article as I was writing it up. It was kind of going off in all sorts of directions. And I thought, well, you know, I, I've got to either cut it here or it's going to just go on and on and turn into a book. So that's something that I would actually like to go back to and, and kind of um, pick up with some of those threads. Wow. Well, listen, this has been so much fun to talk to you and excited about all of your adventures and your plans. And I hope that you'll, uh, when the book about Jerusalem is published, I hope you'll come back and talk, talk with us about Thank it. you. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. Our guest has been Jody Magnus, uh, talking about lots of her work all over the place, but primarily about her work at Hukok. And um, I hope that she's going to come back and visit again sometime soon, and I hope you'll come back. We'll be back right here, same time, same place. This is D.G. Martin, who's talking. <laughs>